Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Forgiveness is based on grace. It's not based on works. Confessing your sins is not a work. It is simply uh, admitting to God what we have done. And underneath the process is a recognition that Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for every sin. So it's not... We're not trying to impress God with what we're doing. We're not trying to impress God with our remorse or sorrow. We're simply following the same procedures outlined from the Mosaic Law all the way through, and that is that for a priest to function, he must be in fellowship with God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have in a free nation to gather together and to study your word. Father, we are continuously reminded each day that this world is an evil place, that it is uh, too often dominated by violence and war, and that even now this nation is involved with a war against terrorists, not just any terrorists, but that this is indeed a facet of the angelic conflict and it is ultimately in its a manifestation of the war between you and Satan. Father, we pray that as our nation seeks to defend these shores and defend our security and our safety, that you would give our leaders wisdom, that you would give courage to our military leaders and to our military men and women who are serving overseas, that you would confuse the enemy and confound the enemy and that we might have victory over them. Father, we continue to pray for the health and the, of our leaders, especially our president, that you would give him clarity of thought and objectivity of thought. Father, now as we study your word, we gather together this morning for the highest form of worship, which is to learn how you would have us to think. And we do that by studying the mind of Christ, the word of God, the scriptures. Father, now as we study these things, we pray that you would help us to understand them, to see how they relate to our own thinking, our own situation, our own circumstances, that we might not only learn how to think, but we might apply these uh, principles in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians give us the introduction. We have the salutation in the 
first verse where Paul is addressing himself, the Apostle Paul is addressing himself to the church in Corinth. This is a church, as we have studied, that he founded in Acts chapter 18. We studied the situation as he came down the Greek peninsula. He went to Athens where he had very little response to the gospel, and then he went from there to Corinth. He spent some uh, six months there in Corinth, where he, or a couple of years in Corinth, where he began to teach the, uh, uh, he began to teach in the uh, synagogue, and then he was kicked out of the synagogue, and he went next door, and started a, a church in, a, in, a, in the house next door to the uh, synagogue there in Corinth. He addresses them in the first nine verses in a unique way. He begins with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving focuses on what they have in Christ and what we have in Christ. It's the same thing. Every believer gets the same package, the same assets, everything we need to face any situation, any problem, any difficulty in life. And what we're going to discover in this epistle is that the Corinthians face just about every problem that people face in life, and they usually handled them the way most people do, and that is in a wrong way. And so Paul had to straighten them out. And that's to our benefit because we get to uh, listen in on his uh, correction for them and his instruction to them and see how he handles it. Now, this is, to me, it's fascinating as I'm going through 1 Corinthians now to look at this from the framework of problem solving. And that is that, that there's a problem here and how does Paul handle the problem? And it's not the way that most of us handle problems or most of us would think you would go about having a problem. Now, when we come to verse 10, where we begin the first major section of this epistle. It covers verse 10 of chapter 1 down through the end of chapter 4. And it is usually described as dealing with divisions in the church. And that's sort of the occasion for this remark is because there are are four factions or four cliques within the congregation that are vying with one another for, for power. But the interesting thing is the way Paul handles that. Now, any church, any group of people, any company, any business has a tendency for people to congregate together around uh, certain leaders. Sometimes that's, I mean, that's just normal. It doesn't have to be something that's negative. Sometimes you have cliques that form. And when those cliques begin to emphasize exclusion to other people, that's when it becomes bad or you feel like, well, you just can't ever uh, get to know certain groups or some groups move into some sort of control situation where they make most of the decisions or affect most of the policy making. Nobody else has any input. That's when it becomes bad. But every every time we have a group of people get together, there are always problems eventually. That's because we're all sinners and everybody has a sin nature. And when people are operating uh, on arrogance, eventually there's always going to be a breakdown in relationships and there's always going to be problems. Now, the way modern man and especially a modern American wants to solve a problem is we want to get people together. We want to sit around the table. We want to find out, uh, let's open up some manner of discourse, find out what your real problems are, what your concerns are, uh, what you're sensitive to, and find out what the other person's problem is. And we get into this kind of a, an interpersonal dialogue based on all kinds of psychological models of human behavior. Now, the problem is most of us don't realize that this whole approach to problem solving 
interpersonal relationships or conflict, conflict management, they call it, is always grounded on this psychological framework of looking at human behavior. Notice, here we have a church that is having some uh, major conflicts and, and schisms in the church, and we'll look at the, the degree of that in a minute. But I want you to pay attention to how Paul handles it. I mean, this is the divine viewpoint strategy for handling interpersonal problems. And he doesn't do it by having people sit around, hold hands, go through some sort of sensitivity training. He doesn't handle it in any of the approaches that we're used to in all of our conflict management, personnel management type of approaches. If you are in any level of management and any level of work, you're exposed to all of this kind of approach uh, day in and day out just to uh, for handling people. However, the Scripture says there's a completely different way to approach this, and that is from the framework of Scripture. So man always handles his problems through various different uh, techniques, which we classify under the general heading of human viewpoint, and it all is an outgrowth of pagan thinking. Now, as I've said before, and I always want to define it, paganism is not a pejorative term. The term pagan refers to any category of thinking that is not biblical. It has a technical meaning. And I use it in that technical sense, not in a pejorative sense. And um, so there's only two ways of looking at life. There's God's way and the pagan way. And there's only two strategies, basically, for dealing with things in life, and that's God's way and that's the pagan way. So it's not just a matter of what you do. It's also how we do things. It also affects methodology. And we're going to get a glimpse of that and how Paul addresses this issue of divisions in the church at Corinth. So a couple of observations are in order before we get into the details of our section this morning in verses 10 through 17. First of all, the divisions that exist in the church at Corinth are not doctrinal. They're not doctrinal divisions. Paul handles doctrinal divisions in a completely different manner. We've studied Galatians in the past, and we've seen that when there are doctrinal problems and there are divisions as there were in Galatia between the legalists and the grace-oriented uh, believers, then this, um, then this was man- manifested a certain way, and Paul condemned the false doctrine he for example in galatians chapter 2 he confronts peter head on now a lot of people when they get into first corinthians they want to make it a doctrinal thing uh, because one person is following apollos another's following peter and they want to focus on some like as if there's some sort of doctrinal disagreement but but that's not the issue here paul doesn't handle this if you read carefully read first corinthians 1 through 4, there is no, uh, uh, Paul is not correcting any particular doctrine. What he is correcting is the framework within which this congregation is looking at their leadership. It's not a doctrinal problem, therefore, it is more of a political problem. And that's the second observation. The terminology that is used here is more often found in the uh, in the language of the polis, the Greek polis. Polis is the word, the Greek word for city or city-state, and it is the language of the polis, the language of politics, the language of of um, of civil government and the problems of civil government. He doesn't use language that is related to doctrine. And then third, 
The third observation we should make is that in Paul's correction, he's consistently stressing wisdom in contrast to foolishness. Over and over again, in fact, uh, we will notice that a vast number of the times of, of all of all the times that the words foolishness and wisdom are used in the New Testament, they're used in these four chapters. That is a major theme. When you have words like foolishness and wisdom used uh, this much in this short of space, it, it says something. That's part of a, one of the principles of observation in Bible study is a principle of concentration and emphasis. And when you see a word or words or word groups used over and over and over again in a narrow area or in a short section, then that is a major emphasis, major theme in that section. So Paul is addressing the problem by saying you're looking at life the the wrong way. You're looking at life, you're looking at leadership, you're looking at social grouping from a, from the typical, as we'll see, from a typical Greek way of looking at things, and that is their, their, their culture. They're not looking at it uh, from the framework of the Scriptures. Now, it's important in, in reading, just for those of you who don't know how to read, and that's probably most of you, um, oh, you think you can read because you can pick up a, something and you can read the words, but uh, that's not how you learn how to read. One of the things that I learned, I, I was out of college by the time I finally learned this, is that if you pick up a book, and I'm not talking about some novel or some mystery book or or uh, some romance novel or whatever it is you might be interested in reading just to give your mind a little mental chewing gum. But if you're going to sit down and read something of substance, some kind of nonfiction work, there is a procedure to reading. And one of the things that you do is you sit down and you pick up a book and you should always read the introduction to a book or the preface. I'm amazed at how many people skip over the introduction or preface to a book as if it doesn't mean anything. And the, a writer of any, of any value tells you in his introduction why he is writing what he is writing, what his emphasis is, and, and what, his, what his procedure is going to be. And see, it's, it's, the way most people read a book, it would be like getting ready to go on a car trip from here to California, and uh, you have no idea wh- how, where you're going to go after you get past Hartford, because the only thing you're going to look at is a road map from here to Hartford. But maybe going to Hartford isn't the best way. Maybe going out Route 2 isn't the best way. Maybe it's better to go down 95 and then cut across on the Taffin Z Bridge and go across that way. But if you don't look to where your end result is going to be, and you're, if you're not thinking in terms of your ultimate goal, then you may start off wrong. And so you need to read the introduction. The next thing you do is you read the conclusion. Or you skim over the conclusion. Where is the guy going? I remember years ago, I was I think I was out of college, and uh, uh, I was reading one of Francis Schaeffer's books. I think it was either The God Who Is There or Escape from Reason. And Francis Schaeffer's a very difficult writer to read if you don't have a background uh, in reading uh, philosophical or apologetic-oriented literature. And I remember just, just grappling with those first chapters and just, where is this guy going? And uh, so much of the information was new and the framework was new. 
And then one day, I, I, when I finished it, I realized where he was going. And then I went back and read it again. And I think it was Escape from Reason. It's a very small book, about 60 or 70 pages. I went back and read the thing again. And then I really understood what he was saying because I knew where he was going. And see, that's, a, that's an important thing to learn in reading is when you start off reading anything, you read the introduction to find out what the author says he's doing, what his purpose is, what his method is going to be. You read the conclusion to see where he's going. Not, not everything in the conclusion, but just skim over to get an idea of where the guy's going and how he's going to make his conclusion. And then you go back and you look at the table of contents, and you skim the table of contents, and if it's a decent author, then the chapter titles are going to give you a good idea of the flow of his thinking. And then you just skim it. You take maybe, maybe 20, 30 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes to approach a book like that. And then you start reading it. And now you know what it's going to be oriented to and what the details are going to relate to. And that's how you learn to read. And the same thing applies to scripture. It helps to know where we're going and not just plunge in at the beginning without any idea of the development of, of the author's thought. So this section that we have starts in uh, verse 10 of chapter 1 and goes down through the end of chapter 4. Now in verse 10, uh, verse 10 we have a, a plea for unity. We have a request for unity. Paul addresses them as brethren and says that he wants them to, uh, he exhorts them, best translation is, I ask you, I request of you that you all agree and that there not be any divisions among you. And then in verse 11, he gives us the how he received this information that there were problems in the congregation. And in verse 12, he tells us what these problems are, that there are four divisions within the congregation related relating to uh, four different people. Now, that all seems well and good, and then when you get to verse 13, he shifts his subject. He says, well, has Christ been divided? So he's still talking about division, but he, but he starts with division in verse 13 at the beginning. But his last phrase is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? He moves from division to baptism. Now, why is that? And then by the time he, then he spends the next three verses talking about baptism. And by the time he ends this paragraph in verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he ends the section with the gospel. He starts the section by talking about the fact that there are divisions and there are problems in the congregation. He moves through the subject of baptism and ends with the gospel. Now, how, if, I'm addre- if I were addressing or you were addressing a problem of division, let's say you've got a classroom, you've got a group of people, and they're uh, becoming factionalized, they've got cliques in the congregation, congregation, uh, I, I would suggest that the last thing you would have done to solve that problem would be to start to focus on the gospel. But that's Paul's process. Now, we have to understand why he does it that way. What is, what is the technique here? What's the methodology that he's using to solve the problem? And then he's going to move from the cross as the defined as the real power of God in verse eight, verse 18, and he's going to then begin to contrast that, the gospel as the power of God, with the wisdom of this age in verse 20. Now, ten times in these next chapters, there is the mention of a fool or foolishness, in contrast to 26 mentions 
of a word related to wisdom, wisdom or the wise or something like that. So that should tell us right away that the major emphasis in this section is going to have to do with the contrast of God's wisdom with man's wisdom, which is classified as foolishness. By verse 26, he begins to contrast divine methodology with human methodology, and this includes the whole concept of public speaking or preaching. And then in chapter 2, there's a shift to uh, from the divine viewpoint and human viewpoint methodology to an explanation of the mind of Christ. That is the message that we have. Verse 4, he talks of, of chapter 2, he says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, and that relates to the understanding of Greek rhetorical style, but in demonstration of the spirit of power and power. And at that point, he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in Revelation. And that is going to be the subject from verse 6 down to the end of the chapters, how the Holy Spirit has revealed the mind of Christ to us and how we're able to learn it. Now, notice his thought flow. See, I want to give you the big picture here. We're getting the whole road map. Is he starting off with the problem is that there are divisions in the congregation. To solve the problem of divisions and to help them understand why they need to quit this, he goes to, to, the, he goes to baptism which was the literal uh, believer's baptism. Then he goes to the cross. Then he's going to deal with the contrast in the way in which people think and approach life, human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Then we get divine viewpoint from the Holy Spirit in the revelation of Scripture. And then when we get to chapter 3, he's going to come back to the division. See, we haven't lost the division. See, we tend to read that and we think, well, well somehow we've gotten past this, this division thing. But in chapter 3... He starts off and he says he's got to address them as carnal believers because they are, they are so divided. And in verse 4 he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am Apollos, are you not acting like mere men? You're acting uh, on the basis of the flesh and human viewpoint. So chapter 3 begins with this emphasis on carnality and this these uh, personality cliques that are developing in the congregation. And then he moves from that into rewards and the judgment seat of Christ. Now, why is that? See, that's an interesting question we're going to have to ask. Why, if you're dealing with people who are breaking up into cliques, how do you end up at the judgment seat of Christ? And from the judgment seat of Christ, he moves in verse 16 and 17 to emphasizing the fact that that we are all... uh, that every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sets apart the body of the believer as a, as a temple for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. And then that moves, then he moves from that into the problem, once again he comes back to the problem of foolishness versus wisdom at the end of, the cha- of chapter 3. And then in chapter 4 he is going to apply that, everything he has said in 2 and 3, to the role of the apostle, of the apostles and apostolic authority, and concluding in verse 20 of chapter 4 by saying that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now, you can't understand that sentence if you don't understand everything that's gone before. That's why you always have to study things in context, because what, what he's saying here is that this thing does not consist in words is, is the Greek approach to rhetoric and oratory, 
which put its emphasis on style and manipulative techniques as opposed to content. So the power that he mentions in verse 20 is power that's going to go back to an understanding of the cross and what God has done for us at salvation in contrast to the uh, human viewpoint or Greek culture approach which puts emphasis on, on words and, uh, and the whole concept of, of, uh, of a group of men that were coming to the foreground this time called sophists and their whole methodology. So to understand a lot of what's going on here, we will be uh, looking at Greek culture and how that has affected the people in the congregation. See, we're not any different from, from the Corinthians. We were all saved out of a cultural context. We were all saved out of a late 20th century uh, American context, and we think a certain way. But the way that we were taught to think and approach life and to problem solve is unique to our culture, but it is not necessarily biblical, even though it may be influenced by a certain amount of biblical truth that has has sort of a residual effect in our culture. There are certain absolutes or certain ideas. That does not mean that the frame of reference for our thought is biblical or the framework of our thinking is the framework of God's thinking. And that is the purpose of coming to church. That's the purpose of the pastoral ministry is to teach we are here to learn how to think biblically. And this is one of the major themes in this section is that the Corinthians have failed to learn how to think biblically. They are thinking just like unbelievers. They're operating like unbelievers inside the congregation. And this is going to be emphasized again and again in the entire epistle is that they continue to think and act just like unbelievers. And, uh, they're, they're just a new, it's just a new group. It's just like a new social group or a new club or, or a new school of thought. And, uh, they're all calling themselves Christians now, but they're not thinking or acting any differently from the unbelievers around them. And this is a problem we still have very much so in the church today is in most churches they do not understand that the purpose of what happens in the pulpit is to teach people how to think differently. And it always amazes me that in most churches the emphasis on Sunday morning is on what's called a sermon. Now a sermon is a, is a rhetorical form, just like, um, just like a political speech, just like... Um, maybe a dramatic soliloquy, all of these are different types of forms. And the purpose for a sermon usually is expressed as a exhortation, as some sort of inspiration perhaps, but it is designed to encourage and its focus is really on application. And so those of you who've been around different kinds of churches know that this there are different styles of sermons. Some are much more dramatic and emotional than others. Some are uh, uh, a little more laid back. Uh, some are a little more intellectual, but they are, they all have one thing in common, and that is that they are basically designed not to teach you how to think. It's not instruction. It is more, uh, for exhortation, encouragement, and application. And yet, in most churches, 80% of the people, 70 or 80% of the people come only on Sunday morning, and so the only biblical information they ever get is application. It's never related to real uh, real teaching and instruction as to how to change your thinking. And so they go away 
with the idea that as a Christian I should do this, 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 and this in terms of application, but they don't know why. They don't understand the thinking that goes behind it, and that's the problem. And so they're going to end up in problems, just like the Corinthians, because the Corinthians weren't changing the way they think; they were just changing perhaps a few overt behaviors. And that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a change of overt behaviors. That's that's legalism. Whatever the, the overt behaviors may, may be uh, defined as, that is nothing more than legalism. Christianity is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ and understanding the mind of Christ and then thinking the mind of Christ and having his thoughts as our thoughts. And that is difficult. That does not happen in... Uh, 30 minutes or 45 minutes once a week on a on a Sunday morning. And if people who think that they can learn the Word of God and people who think they can learn to think like God thinks by just showing up once a week are fooling themselves and they're playing games with God. In order to think God's thoughts, in order to understand the mind of Christ, in order to be able to look at life, to be able to evaluate the issues of life, in order to have... Uh, critical thinking skills that are based on the absolutes of the Word of God takes a tremendous amount of time because, in effect, what happens in the process of spiritual growth is that God the Holy Spirit is demolishing the thought forms, the, the value systems, the norms and standards, the thinking methodology that we develop through years of, of human viewpoint training, and he is demolishing that, and he is erecting a new edifice. But if you don't give him the information through the consistent and detailed study of God's Word, day in and day out, then there's no, there's no tools and there's no material for the Holy Spirit to reconstruct this new edifice. And that's what is necessary if we're going to be able to live life uh, live have have uh, marriages that glorify God, raise our children in a way that it's going to uh, that the the, te- the doctrines of the Scripture are going to have a meaningful uh, impact on on their life. Uh, that if we're going to have all of that, we have to change the way we think, and we have to change to a biblical way of thinking. So Paul has to address this because, in in many ways, our approach to to preaching and teaching and what happens in a church has been too influenced over the uh, over the centuries by the uh, oratory of Aristotle and and, and Plato and and the same um, the same ideas of Greek thought. I mean, the same ideas that influenced Greek thought. Uh, there was a problem at the time of uh, at the time of Paul. So let's begin by looking at this first section, these first uh, seven or eight verses, starting in verse 10. Paul begins, Now I exhort you, and here he uses the verb uh, parakalo, parakaleo. It is the present active indicative of parakaleo. Now this is the verb form of the noun parakletos, for the Holy Spirit, and it means literally to call alongside. It is a compound. Hmm. See, I go away for a short time, and I come back here, and somebody loads the, the um, I don't know who did this. This is loaded with permanent sharpie markers you never use permanent sharpie markers on an overhead 
and there's about five or six of them up here. So we're just going to throw those all in the trash, make sure they don't get, we don't confuse those for the real thing. Okay. Parakaleo looks like this in the Greek. P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. Is a compound word. The basic root of the verb is kaleo, which means to call, plus the uh, preposition as a prefix, which has the idea of alongside. And it is a noun. It has the idea of a helper or an assistant. And this refers to the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is our helper and our assistant, who enables us to live the spiritual life. But as a verb, it has a different set of meanings. It means to ask. It means to request. In some cases, it might even mean to beg. It means to appeal. It means to summon. Verbs usually have a much wider range of meaning than, uh, of meanings than nouns do. Now, its primary use in, in rhetoric, in, in Greek rhetorical style or in oratory, was to uh, introduce some sort of appeal that was designed to manipulate, persuade, or convince people. But Paul doesn't use it this way. In fact, if Paul were using it that way, it would be in contrast to the very message that Paul is using it. The word is the word basically was used in two different ways in the literature of the first century, and one was in this specific technical Greek rhetorical style where it's designed to have some sort of manipulative aspect to it, or it's used simply to make a simple request, and that's how it should be translated here. It's translated, I exhort, but that's not a good translation in the New American Standard. It should be, I ask you or I request of you, brethren. Paul is making a request based on his apostolic authority. See, he says, I exhort you. We'll leave the word brethren out for a minute before we come back to it. I ask you or I request of you through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he uses another technical construction. In the Greek, it is the preposition dia plus the genitive. Now, we have seen dia plus the genitive in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And dia plus the genitive always has the idea of means or instrumentality, that it is through something, not because of something. He is saying he is asking this through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who commissioned him as an apostle, and sent him on a particular mission. And as an apostle, he is a direct representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is laying the foundation of the church according to Ephesians 2.20. So the Lord Jesus Christ is working through the apostles in directing the church. And so Paul is once again reminding them of his apostolic authority, which is a major issue with the Corinthians. They are going to question his credentials. 
and whether he really has authority over them. And he begins by by emphasizing his apostolic authority and saying, I ask you or I request of you through the name, that is the name always indicates in a Semitic context the character of someone because of the character, in other words, because of who Jesus Christ is as in the hypostatic union, that he is 100% deity and 100% humanity, united together in one person forever, that he is the Savior of the world because he was fully God and fully man. He was qualified to go to the cross and die as our substitute. Because he was fully God, his death had eternal value. Because he was fully man, he could die as our substitute. So Paul says, I ask your request of you through the name or through the work, person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now there's one other word here that we need to uh, translate and make a comment on, even though it's ridiculous to even have to make, in my opinion, it's ridiculous to even have to comment on this, but, but we've lost this battle. See, language is becoming the tool of people who have particular socio-political agendas. And language and language study today, linguistics, is about 80% philosophy, and that philosophy that dominates today is postmodernism. And what is happening today is something called uh, gender inclusion. And so we have to include all the genders. So when the Bible uses masculine nouns and masculine pronouns, we have to come along and we have to break everything up. And in its worst form, you have um, in some translations God referred to as it, or some translations will even put it refer to God as he, she. And this is just absurd because what you don't realize is that you are making, when you translate language a certain way, it changes the, changes the meaning, and that change of meaning reflects a human viewpoint approach to reality. And the scriptures use, and, and it is not sexist to do so, the, the scriptures use terms, masculine terms, to refer to everyone. See, people just don't understand language. For, for uh, going back to the study of, the, uh, of language by the, um, by the Romans, you have in, in most languages you have nouns that have one of three forms. For we'll just call them X, Y, and Z. Well, the classification, the term that was used to classify these three forms of uh, of nouns, was that some were called masculine, some were called feminine, and others were called neuter. But if you've ever studied an inflected language that divides words up into masculine, feminine, and neuter, you will immediately realize that these do not have anything to do with the um, the sex, so-called or alleged sex of the object. For example, a window in German is a feminine noun, yet windows are not feminine. A Mädchen, a young woman in German, is a neuter noun, but they're not neuter. You see, Gender, which now has become a, because of certain politic people with political agendas, since the 60s, the word gender has become a synonym for sex. So you talk about a person, are they of a male gender or feminine gender, female gender? But the term gender was originally a grammatical term to indicate this kind of classification. Words have gender, people have sex, do not become confused. 
And see, but once you confuse that, then all of a sudden you start changing the nature and meaning of language. And so when you have certain words that are masculine, such as uh, adelphos, which means brother, and you try to import into that uh, sexuality, and um, uh, then you start having problems. And but that's exactly what happens now. So what what is popular? And there's a new uh, Zonovan just introduced a new NIV Bible that's going to be have gender uh, gender inclusive language. So they're going to uh, start translating the scriptures, which says Adolphos brothers, which refers to men and women uh, together. It's not just a term that was nobody who heard it at that time thought that it was restricted to males. Nobody who heard it when you were speaking Greek, uh, there wasn't a woman in the ancient world who thought somehow that excluded them. You know, that only comes about when you approach language from a certain political agenda based on the absurdities of modern feminism. But if you buy into all of the presuppositions of modern feminism, then that's going to lead you eventually to change the way you handle language, which is what's happened in America in the modern 20th century. So this is just an application of how in America we've got the same kind of problems the Greeks had. We're taking secular American culture and secular American norms and standards, and then we're uh, importing them into the church and into the practice of translation of the Scriptures. And that's just as wrong as what was going on in, in Corinth. So we have to be very careful. But you have, this is the popular thing now, is to have gender-exclusive language. So uh, you'll find various new translations that come along and are going to translate this. Now, I, I exhort, exhort you, brothers and sisters. Well, in my opinion, that's just absurd, and, and it begins to erode the basic divine viewpoint approach to language and the Scriptures. But that's completely different subject, but is a major problem we have to be aware of today. And what underlies that is not an accuracy in handling the Scriptures, but is uh, a sensitivity that is brought to bear because of a certain way of looking at the role of men and women in our secular culture. And by going to that route, you're basically uh, legitimizing the assumptions of feminism. And let me make it even more clear, when you, the, the basic assumption of feminism is that male and female are interchangeable roles. And if you say that they're not, and they, they're distinct roles, uh, even though they're equal, then, then uh, uh, in feminism, equality cannot, uh, th- then any kind of subordination means inequality. Now, the reality behind that is that Jesus Christ is subordinate as the second person of the Trinity to God the Father, who's the first person of the Trinity, and yet he is completely equal. So if subordination of role means inequality of person, then you're basically saying that the Trinity can't be right. And it's another subtle assault on the Trinity. What is happening is that God defines reality, and the ultimate reality is God. And the ultimate reality starts with the Trinity. And in the Trinity, you have something fascinating. You have a multiplicity of persons, and yet they are one. So you have an inequality in the ultimate reality of the universe, both uh, multiplicity, plurality, or what we might call diversity, and equality, and they're, they're equal with one another. Now, one of the biggest problems I've ever faced philosophers is how do you explain this whole problem between uh, diversity and uh, equality. 
And you always, and in, in human thought, it always goes to one one direction or the other. They're always going to emphasize the one, or they're going to emphasize the multiplicity or the many. When you emphasize the one politically, you end up in totalitarianism. When you emphasize the many, the individuals, then you end up push that all the way out. You end up in anarchy. You apply that to marriage. You emphasize the one too much. You're going to end up with a, a tyrannical view of the the headship of the man, or you end up with a tyrannical view of the headship of the woman in a, in a matriarchy. Uh, you go the other way, then you have complete fragmentation, which is where we're headed today. So all of these things have implications in many other areas because thought does, is not restricted to just one area. And the problem with modern American education is that we have so uh, segmented education that nobody understands the relationships between different uh, categories of uh, education. For example, you don't understand the relationship between political theory and, lingu- and, and linguistic theory. But there are relationships there, but you don't understand that in a typical university because it's too fragmented. Well, we've gone far afield, so let's get back to the text. Now, I exhort you, brethren. Paul is saying, I ask you, I request of you, and the term brethren is a term that is all-inclusive of men and women in the congregation and is a term related to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, again, we're emphasizing the fact that all of these messed up, screwed up, confused, carnal Corinthians are all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul has authority over them as an apostle. He says, I ask of you, brethren, and through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now, this is not in a doctrinal sense, because the issue, as I said earlier, is not talking about doctrine. He says that, that there be no divisions among you. And here's the Greek word uh, schema and the Greek word or, or schisma. And the Greek word schisma can refer to, to strong divisions, but it can all, also refer to just uh, differences in thinking or differences in judgment. It was used to describe things that some things that were torn apart physically or literally ripped apart. And it is also used in a metaphorical sense to describe division between people. This use of division between people can be traced as far back as Herodotus in the 5th century. It was also used by Diodorus in the 1st century B.C. and then later by Clement of Rome in 96 A.D. when he was referring to, once again, to the divisions in the Corinthian church. So this was something that continued to go on. But notice, I don't know how many of you have been in churches that have been been deeply divided over are, are divided over doctrine, but they tend to split into different congregations. This is still one congregation, so the problem of divisions here is real, but it's not so deep and rigid that it is causing the congregation to split into different congregations. But there are disagreements, and there are uh, these these um, cliques that have developed. In the Corinthian church, and Paul is writing this in about 53, 54 A.D., and so even for the next 50 years, uh, the Corinthian church is still going to be plagued by this same kind of problem. Paul says he is requesting them of them that they agree and that there not be any uh, divisions among them. Now, these divisions, as we're going to see, always come from mental attitude sins, and the sin nature. 
because they are, verse 11 says that Chloe's people has informed him that there are quarrels among them, and this is the same word used for strife in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, which talks about this as one of the manifestations of the works of the flesh or the sin nature. So Paul is countering that. He says you need to have the same kind of thinking and the same judgment. Now the word here that is translated same thinking and same um, and the same judgment are words that are used typically in a political discourse of the day and talking about the problems that occur in uh, in local governments and when when a society or or a city is fragmented over what they want to do not a view that is uncommon today. Nevertheless, they remain in the same congregation. So the problem is that there there are these schisms. Now, we don't know what they are yet, and that we wait till verse 12 to find out. But we find out in verse 11 how Paul discovered this. It did not come with the messengers that came from Corinth to request of him the answers to certain questions, but he learned of this uh, through the grapevine, so to speak. Verse 11, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. Now, Chloe is, a, is the name of a woman, and she is not in Corinth. But apparently she was, uh, remember, Paul is over in Ephesus at this time. Apparently she had a business, a trade, probably a trade business in Ephesus, and some of her employees, this is a, the phraseology here is not talking about a family. It's usually talking about uh, a, the kind of structure that's talking about someone's um, employees by Chloe's people. So apparently she had um, people who worked for her who were believers who were engaged in trade and were traveling back and forth across the Aegean Sea from uh, Ephesus to Corinth. And when they were in Corinth, they would go to the church in Corinth, and then they came back to Ephesus and they uh, went immediately to Paul and said there were some significant problems in the Corinthian church. So he has some firsthand information from people who have been there that there were quarrels and there are there's strife in the congregation in Corinth. And it's related to personalities. Verse 12, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Now Cephas was the Aramaic name for Peter. Now, they are not dividing up according to doctrine because, as far as we can tell at this point, there is no doctrinal disagreement between Paul, Apollos, Peter, and, of course, of Christ. (coughs) But what we do have here is something that was typical of the sophists, that is, the philosophical schools in uh, Greece at this time is they tended to, remember, most all these people are saved out of a pagan background. Now, what would happen in the culture at large is that they would become attracted to different teachers and different personalities, and then they would uh, uh, develop different schools around these different leaders and these different personalities. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul, Apollos, and Peter were, were in opposition to one another, but the people were apparently... Uh, one was attracted to one teacher, another's attracted to another teacher, and so they began to develop these cliques and these personality cults related to their teachers. And that was beginning to have a divisive effect there. So some were saying that they were, they were um, follower, followers of Paul and others of Apollos and some of, of Peter, 
but the the um, the real sanctimonious crowd said, "No, no, you we're followers of Jesus. You know, you always have one group that tries to be holier than everybody else, and this this was the crowd that claimed to have their um, they were the followers of Jesus. They weren't going to follow mere men. They were going to follow Jesus." So Paul, how does Paul handle the problem of division in verse 13? He says, has Christ been divided? And the way he asks the question implies a negative answer. Christ has not been divided. Has Christ been divided? No, of course not. And then he asks, he asks these three rhetorical questions in verse 13 in order to focus the answer. Has Christ been divided? No, of course not. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, the answer to that would be no. The answer to all three would be no. Christ has not been divided. So the body of Christ is not divided up according to personality. Secondly, he says it wasn't Paul who was crucified. Notice how he uses himself here. He doesn't use the others. He wants to use just himself because he's making the point that... Paul, neither Paul nor nor Apollos nor Peter are really the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ, and the issue is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I think it's fascinating that he moves from a division of Christ to baptism because apparently there were some in the in Corinth who had been down in Judea. There's a possibility that Peter had been in Corinth, but there's no hard evidence. And some were baptized by Peter, some were baptized by Apollos, and so whoever baptized them, they're, they're, they seem to be emphasizing that as, as the, um, the leader of, a, of a, this particular school of influence. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then in verse 14 he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Crispus was the head of the synagogue. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that he did baptize. So when he says in verse um, 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, he is not saying that Paul, that he was not supposed to baptize anyone. Go back to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is the Great Commission, where Jesus is addressing the disciples, and he says, while you are going, it's a temporal participle there, while you are going, make disciples. That's the command to make students. That's what disciple is. Make students uh, of all men, uh, teaching them, and baptizing them. Now, I've heard some say that baptism was just to be restricted to the early part of the um, church age until the completed canon of Scripture. But uh, the argument that I've heard that that's based on is because there is no uh, command after the close of the canon or after the um, after Acts, there is no command to baptize. In fact, there are only two places in Scripture where the word baptize is used in an imperative, and both one is in Peter's sermon on the, um, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and another is an imperative form that is used by Paul when he is uh, speaking of his salvation. So there is actually no command to baptize, no command to the apostles anywhere to baptize. So the idea that the lack of an imperative form of baptism somehow suggests that uh, 
that Christian that that pastors that Christians should not be baptized or that baptism is not for the whole church age is an empty argument based on a false premise. Uh, baptism is for the church age, but it has to be correctly understood. Baptism is a picture of what happens at salvation in terms of positional truth. So once again, we see that Paul is coming back to the same doctrine, the same subject that he emphasized in the beginning of his uh, of the epistle in his in his prayer of thanksgiving, and that is that we have been given everything in Christ at the instant of salvation. We are identified with Christ, we are placed in Christ, and we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, we have given, been given 40 things that are ours, 40 spiritual blessings, 40 spiritual realities that are ours, that belong to every single believer at the instant of salvation. Now, in water baptism or believer's baptism is to be, first of all, for believers only. It's not for children unless they have a clear understanding of their salvation. It's not for infants. And it is, um, it's for believers only, and it is done by immersion. And the reason is, is that it is a picture, just as the Lord's table is a picture of... Um, of what Christ did on the cross, the, the bread is a picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in, his, in the fact that he is impeccable, he is without sin. And the cup is a picture of his uh, sacrifice on the cross where he pays the penalty for our sins. So just as the communion service is a picture of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Believer's baptism is a picture of positional truth. It doesn't get you saved. You don't get any special blessing because you're baptized. You're not any more or less spiritual because you're baptized. It is simply a teaching tool that God has uh, initiated to, uh, for the church age in order that new believers have an accurate understanding of what took place at salvation in terms of positional truth. And so, too often in churches you get people who are saved and they immediately try to run them out and get them baptized. And the problem with that is they don't understand what it is they're doing. They, they've never been taught positional truth. They don't know the first thing about positional truth. And so they're going through some ritual that has no reality because there hasn't been any teaching. So the purpose of baptism is to give churches an opportunity to teach the new convert, what has taken place at salvation, and once they understand that, then they make a public, uh, it's just a public statement of what has happened, a public testimony of what Jesus Christ did for them at the instant of salvation. It doesn't make them any more spiritual, and it doesn't have anything to do with salvation or the spiritual life, except that it is uh, a ritual that has reality. So Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Paul clearly baptized. And he says that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. So apparently they were going around distorting this into the fact that they're, they're baptized in the name of one of these leaders. And in verse 16 he says, now, oh yeah, also he has a, he remembers that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he also baptized the household of Stephanus. 
But the point that he is making is that baptism is secondary. Proclamation of the gospel is primary. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That is his primary mission. Baptism is secondary. But to proclaim the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Now, what does he mean by cleverness of speech? And this is going to get into, this is going to introduce the main theme that Paul is going to deal with through the next three chapters, and that is the rhetorical, oratorical techniques of secular culture versus the clear content-oriented uh, explanation of what Christ did on the cross, where the power is in the cross, not in the words of the preacher. See, too many preachers want to manipulate people. You've all been to churches where they've had uh, walk-the-aisle invitations, and they'll sing 57 verses of Just As I Am, and they'll, you know, I, I've even seen some some churches where in order to get somebody to come forward, they'll say, everybody who wants to uh, pray for their mother, come forward. Well, you know, they, they're going to come up with something to get people out of the pew and to come forward and to kneel. So they, 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 they manipulate people. And that is just human viewpoint thinking that is not uh, biblical at all, simply designed to have some sort of overt response, uh, usually to bring some sort of prestige upon the speaker. But what Paul is saying here is that Style and technique is not the issue. The issue is the message of what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And when people hear that message, when God the Holy Spirit makes that real to them and they respond to that in faith alone, in Christ alone, that's the power of the gospel. It is not to be diluted or destroyed by mixing it with human viewpoint uh, techniques of, of speech or oratory in order to manipulate people's emotions and get them into salvation. It's got to be based solely on content and on an understanding, a clear understanding of the gospel and what the Lord did for us on the cross. We'll come back next time and begin to look at the emphasis on this starting in verse 18 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word uh, this morning to understand that the real power is in the cross. It's not in techniques. It's not in methodology. That just as uh, in salvation, the gospel is made clear and people respond of their own volition, so is it true in, in every facet of a church ministry. It's based on not on human viewpoint technique, human viewpoint techniques of church growth or or manipulation of people, but on on people responding, that, that you are the one who provides the hearers. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that sure and certain right now. If you're here this morning and you're not sure of your eternal destiny, all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture says that, that he was crucified according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. This is the gospel. If you accept that is true, that he died on the cross for your sins, then you have eternal life. That eternal life can never be taken from you. It is yours. And at the rapture, you will go to heaven to be with the Lord, and thus you will ever be with him. Father, now as we uh, leave here, we pray that you would help us to 
remember and understand the things that we have studied today and be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.